0: Really, the case law, when it was written, wasn't designed to define a generalizable rule. It was just, as case law does, it looks at the particular circumstances of the case. It doesn't necessarily give you a comprehensive roadmap. That's where one of the intellectual challenges is.
1: Welcome to the Brattle Exchange, where we explore critical economic, financial, and accounting topics with Brattle experts and influential voices from industry and academia. It's hosted by The Brattle Group, a global consulting firm that tackles complex economic, financial and regulatory questions for corporations, law firms and governments around the world. Hi, I'm Alberto Vargas. Uh, I'm Paul Hinton. And today we'll be talking about funds tracing. It's an area of forensic analysis and expert testimony with many open questions, even though it's been around for a very, very long time. At a very high level, funds tracing is simply following the money. It is following a trail of payments and transfers through records, through accounts. But really what we want to talk about is a particular kind of funds tracing. We want to think of of it from the perspective of expert work and forensic analysis. And from that perspective, we see it as a set of tools used to identify how specific funds transferred most commonly into a commingled account, were later used. One of the most common examples of this happens when an employee misappropriates funds from its firm and deposits them into a personal account. So this is the same account where his payroll is being deposited, but at the same time, he or she deposits the misappropriated funds. So this account consistently gets payments that are both tainted and non-tainted deposits. And at the same time, there are expenditures being made from this account. Once this employee is caught, there needs to be a way to determine how much of the funds remaining in the account are misappropriated funds and how much are the employee's funds. This is where expert analysis comes. Paul, you've been doing this kind of work for for a very long time. Before we get into the details of how it is done in, in real life, Can you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in this work?
0: Thanks, though. My experience in tracing really began sort of incidentally in connection with uh, some of the white collar criminal cases that I was engaged in. Almost all of those at some point involved some sort of factual question about the money uh, that was used in the scheme and where it came from. But in those initial cases that I worked on, the Uh, alleged misappropriation of fund assets, for example. The fact patterns were pretty simple, and the majority of the bank account balances were contributed by investors. And so there really wasn't commingling, which is the more complicated situation. So the results of the analysis to determine how the funds were used was really not sensitive to the tracing procedures uh, that I had to adopt. It was only later, Uh, when I was exposed to more complex cases with more complicated fact patterns that I realized that there's actually a a wide range of really interesting questions that arise when the patterns of financial transactions are more complicated. And ultimately, in many cases, they're factually ambiguous. And the more I studied those historical cases, uh, the greater appreciation I gained for the intellectual challenges that can be associated with answering the fundamental questions in tracing. You know which specific funds were used to make historical payments and which contributed to the remaining count balances.
1: As I'm sure you you found out through through your works, uh, uh, these kinds of tools extend far beyond only cases where there is some sort of misappropriation. Actually, as a as a matter of fact, not, now that I remember, you and I worked on a case a couple of years ago involving the Employers Retirement System of Puerto Rico, we usually refer to it as ERS, where there was no misappropriation. This was a bankruptcy, if I remember correctly, where ERS had issued a number of bonds. ERS was now facing uh, bankruptcy procedures and the bondholders claimed security interest on certain balance sheet assets. Arguing that these assets were the proceeds of pledged collateral. So in this case, instead of talking about tainted funds like we were talking uh, earlier, we were tracing assets that could be linked or could be considered as pledged collateral. What was uh, really interesting uh, about this case is uh, a point that that you brought up, that there's always a lot of factual ambiguities in the record. In this case, like in many other tracing cases, bank accounts don't have segregated deposits money goes into a bank account of the of the fund in this particular case and it just gets commingled with every other uh, with every other deposit so in order to disentangle the route that all of these uh, deposits that we cared about to disentangle where they went we, we had to rely yes on the bank accounts but also on other contemporaneous records including Emails between the retirement system and and the banks, uh, and also their their accounting records. Many details arise from looking at, at this additional documentation, but there's always evidentiary evidentiary uncertainty left over even after you scour through all the documents.
0: Yeah, so so in other words, no matter how comprehensive your discovery of the of a contemporaneous records, there's almost always uh, missing information. And uh, if you're dealing with a a commingled account, there's always going to be some uh, uses of, of funds where it's not specified which sources of funds were actually used to meet the payment. In that situation, you essentially have a factual vacuum, but to answer the critical legal questions, you need an answer. And so the legal practice has become to use a tracing procedure. In some of the case law, it's actually interesting that it's referred to as as a legal fiction or a convenient fiction is created by using these procedures, uh, which may be objective and consistently applied but are there to essentially substitute for, for a factual record that it does not exist. It's not to say that that means that tracing is a practice of, of making up facts. It's really this process of saying, okay, well, if there's some ambiguity as to which of the available funds were used to make a certain payment, what are you could think of it as, say, what are the range of possible outcomes? And there are a set of consistent and objective rules that have been adopted in different cases and circumstances that limit the range of possibilities. But when you apply the rules to particular fact patterns, uh, you can end up with a great deal of opportunity for a difference of opinion, matching different sources of funding with uses, a range of alternative results can be generated. And obviously that then becomes a matter for expert testimony and disputes and litigation.
1: Paul, we, we've been focusing on on one uh, one aspect of tracing, which is filling in the factual record. So completing the picture, so to speak, linking the deposits with expenditures that you cannot link by looking just at the documents. But at the same time, there's a second purpose for, for the tracing, which is to fashion equitable remedies in, in a lot of these cases. For example, settings in trust disputes in which a trustee has failed some fiduciary duty is, is one of the usual settings for, for tracing. And in these cases, the question is not always how to trace the way in which the funds were actually used, but instead to trace how funds could or should have been used to satisfy that fiduciary duty. And not surprisingly, the tracing procedure is appropriate when you want to simply fill in the factual record and when you want to find an equitable remedy might be at odds. It may be that the most appropriate uh, procedure is one when all you care about is about completing the picture and the appropriate procedure can be a different one when you want to find the most equitable remedy so to speak.
0: So at this point you're probably wondering what are these different uh, rules. There, there are a number of different Uh, rules that that have been used in different cases uh, recognized in, in the case law. And they differ in terms of the priority that's given to different sources when funding payments from an account. Priority is commonly granted in terms of the timing of the deposits. Examples of those rules would be LIFO and FIFO, which are common accounting rules, but they could also be based on the priority status of the particular depositor, such as in the case that um, you were describing for ERS, where we were talking about certain funds coming in that were pledged assets and certain funds that were coming from other sources. There's a rule that's referred to as the lowest intermediate balance rule that is often used in that circumstance, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. There's also a fourth commonly used rule, which is sort of pro rata um, or pari passu approach, uh, which uh, has a pretty clear intuitive interpretation. Now, of course, the circumstances under which different rules are deemed appropriate is a matter of judgment. In the case of the lowest intermediate balance rule, the rule itself actually establishes certain sort of principles, but it isn't actually fully defined in a way that's generalizable to all fact patterns. And so it actually requires uh, some judgment in um, implementation.
1: In your experience, have you found that even though there are all of these different rules, each specific case has a very clear set of instructions within the legal guidance as to which is the appropriate one in in, in each case? Yeah,
0: just the, the process of choosing the right or most appropriate rule in a particular circumstance is the subject of case law in a number of different areas. And actually, this case law goes back, in some cases, hundreds of years. They are unsurprisingly fact-pattern specific. And what that means is that uh, really the case law, when it was written, wasn't designed to define a generalizable rule. It was just, you know, as case law does, it looks at the particular circumstances of the case. It doesn't necessarily give you a comprehensive roadmap. That's where one of the intellectual challenges is. You know, courts around the world have made decisions in cases involving issues of tracing, as I said, dating back over 200 years. So there's actually a a rich history of cases to draw on. Um, Not that they'll always necessarily be decided consistently. One of the most well-known pieces of case law is called Clayton's Rule. This actually comes from English case law in 1816. That was a rule that adopted FIFO, the first-in, first-out uh, approach. And the idea there was, you know, it was being applied to a situation where there were a number of debts that were owed, and the idea was you have to pay off the oldest debts first. The Supreme Court in the US subsequently has referenced Clayton's Rule, and so it's sort of interesting to read US case law citing English law. But then in the Supreme Court in tw- 1924, was one of the pieces of US case, uh, U.S. law that references or employs the lowest intermediate balance rule. The case I'm referring to is Cunningham versus Brown. And that's a case that's fun to to talk about because it's uh, connected with the original Ponzi scheme of Charles Ponzi. It wasn't actually the first time the lowest intermediate balance rule was cited by the Supreme Court. That happened a few years earlier. But um, it is the most fun case, case example to talk about. You may know that the Ponzi scheme, the original Ponzi scheme had to do with international postage stamps, believe it or not. And it was really a scheme that Mr. Ponzi was purporting to execute an arbitrage by buying these stamps in one country country and then taking advantage of, of volatility in foreign exchange markets after the First World War to sort of sell them essentially as a form of currency uh, at a at a profit. And he offered to pay his investors of the funds that they put up, purportedly funding the purchase of these postage stamps. The bankruptcy trustee, who was Cunningham, uh, was acting for the unsecured creditors after the Ponzi scheme blew up and, and the estate was in bankruptcy. The trustee was litigating with individual investors who were bringing their own lawsuits to essentially get preferential treatment in recovering their investments, because obviously there wasn't enough money to pay all the investors back, um, as is the case in a Ponzi scheme. The group of investors who brought this case, Brown being the, the lead member of that group, they argued that Clayton's rule should apply because they had made their investments put relatively early in the scheme. According to Clayton's rule, they were saying, well, we were the first ones to put our money in, so we should get our money out. And the Supreme Court under Chief Justice Taft uh, rule that it wasn't appropriate to use Clayton's rule in this situation, nor to grant them a preference in this way, because they were all duped investors, and so they should all be treated equally. But he went on to ar- argue that in this particular case, the investors' claim for rescission, damages for fraud, which was the basis for their lawsuit, um, ignored the fact that between the date when they put their money into the account and the bankruptcy the account had actually almost been drained before it was topped up by transfers made by Ponzi from another account. You know, in other words, between the date they deposited and the bankruptcy date, the amount that they had put in had been drained. This lowest intermediate balance, as they called it, that they could have drawn from and not the higher level that the account subsequently reached and existed at the time of the the bankruptcy. That's how the intermediate, lowest intermediate balance rule was invoked, even though it wasn't the basis for, only basis for denying that claim, which was really denied on the basis that they uh, should all be treated equally.
1: That's a really good story. Let me talk a little bit more about the, the lowest intermediate balance because the way you've described it, it seems like it's a pretty straightforward rule to implement. You, you have a commingled bank account. Whenever there's an expenditure, If there are enough non-tainted or non-pledged assets, you assume that the expenditure is done with the non-tainted assets, and only when you run out of non-tainted assets, you start uh, spending the rest of the money. However, there's enough leeway in the implementation of this rule that expert judgment comes into play in many instances where, where it is applied. And I'll circle back to the, to the ERS case that we were discussing earlier. So as we mentioned earlier, here we're not talking about tainted money, we're talking about pledged assets. Just like in the example I was describing before, we had pledged assets going into the same bank account that non-pledged assets were. What became interesting in this case is that during the period that the bank accounts had enough funds, some durable assets were bought. And when the durable assets were bought, there were both pledged and non-pledged assets in the bank accounts. So following the description that we've just presented about the lowest intermediate balance, those durable assets should have been paid by with non-pledged assets. So the money that you're not that interested in, in tracing is the one that should have been used. But what ended up happening is that by the end of the period that we were looking at these accounts, the accounts were uh, completely depleted. What was the original intent of using the lowest intermediate balance, which is to preserve as much of the pledged property in the bank account becomes irrelevant because there, is, there are no funds left to preserve at the end of, of the period. So if you simply apply the lowest intermediate balance as a rule as it's written, at the end of the day, there is nothing for the bondholders to recover. However, what we saw in this case was that the expert or the bondholders applied selective or a, a variation of the lowest intermediate balance that benefited from hindsight and that prioritized the equitable recovery of the assets over the application of the rule. So what, what did he do? He knew that some of the funds that went into the commingled account were used to purchase durable assets. So even though at that point in time, there were non-pledged assets available in the bank account, he simply assumed that the pledged assets were used to buy the durable assets. So this goes against the strict application of lowest intermediate balance, but it is prioritizing the recovery of the pledged assets using the benefit of hindsight. This is a very clear example of a situation where it was a judgment call by the expert. It should have been a matter of the legal ruling deciding who was right, the expert that was applying those intermediate balance as a strict tracing rule, or the expert who used the benefit of hindsight and prioritized the recovery of the assets, Unfortunately, this case settled before there was a ruling. We remain with the question of who would have prevailed from a legal perspective. And this is just one example of cases in which there's judgment calls to be made by by an expert in in these cases. Another one that is faced frequently is something that you touched on earlier, uh, Paul, where the funds are completely depleted, but then they're replenished. So let's say in the example you were discussing where there's, uh, where there's a Ponzi scheme, the commingled account gets completely depleted, but then there's additional funds deposited, is there any uh, reason to assume that the replenished assets can be labeled as traceable funds, or do you simply assume that these are completely new funds and cannot be uh, assumed to be replenishing the funds that you are tracing?
0: You know, you could see that the Chief Justice Taft could have decided that lost intermediate balance rule application in the Ponzi case slightly differently, right? And said, well, since there's more money comes in to replenish the account, that's now available to repay the, the defendants or the plaintiffs in that case. As you said, right, it depends on the particular facts of the case. In the Ponzi case, it was there was different title to the assets that came in. They weren't considered to to be fungible with the um, with the original asset, It's partly the fact that there are all these different bodies of case law in different areas that make it interesting. You were talking about the bankruptcy, uh, a lien tracing case in bankruptcy. Those are generally governed under the U- universal commercial code. There are also bankruptcy preference actions that are covered under bankruptcy law. I mentioned the white collar cases that I've worked on generate their own precedents and then there's a whole body of of trust law from which the lowest intermediate balance rule cases mainly originate so there's a lot of different competing uh, sources to consider
1: and i think that what we find in a lot of these cases is that it's it's never a case of simply applying an algorithmic law or just a simple rule there, there always has to be expert judgment involved
0: Well, I'm not sure I would completely agree with you in that I I think when we started out in this conversation, I did point out that my first experience in tracing were in cases where there wasn't a co-mingled account, right? And the evidentiary record was pretty complete, right? There weren't that many gaps. So there are some pretty clear-cut circumstances where an account, for example, is being used as a pass-through account that tends to result in the tracing procedure following the LIFO rule, matching the outflows to the most recent inflows. And there are cases when both the the rule selection itself is pretty clear based on precedent and the, the factual record is not complicated enough that applying a different rule would give you a very different result. So in those types of cases, it may just be a matter of doing the careful forensic analysis and following the money. But as you said, in larger cases with more complicated facts, it's not necessarily an easy question. Experts may not even agree what the scope of the factual evidence uh, that's missing is, uh, how to interpret what was intended in terms of the use of sources of funds and matching to uses, let alone either what rule to select or in the case of lowest intermediate balance rule, how to actually implement the rule.
1: So I, I think that that's a great way to to sum up the bulk of what, what we've discussed, Paul. It's It's been really great talking to you and go down memory lane about these, these cases we've enjoyed doing over the last few years.
0: Uh, yeah, it's been uh, great working with you in this area. Thanks Alberto.